Welcome back to Season 2 of the Clean Water Pod, the show about the challenges and successes in restoring and protecting water quality. My name's Jeff Burkus, and I'm talking to dedicated professionals across the country to build an understanding of how policy and science work together to meet the goals of the Clean Water Act for fishable, swimmable, and drinkable water quality in our nation's waters. To help us in our exploration of all things nutrients and water quality, I'm joined again by my EPA friend, Tegan Rostock. Tegan, how are you today? I'm good, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing great. We've got a really nice, fun episode today. Uh, We're going to be traveling to Montana, but I thought that it might be a good idea for us to sort of take stock of where these sources of nitrogen and phosphorus pollution can potentially enter our nation's waters. There's a lot of different ways in which that can happen. I kind of want to run through them up top here, but they come from agriculture, urban stormwater, urban wastewater, something called atmospheric deposition, which is a nice, fun, big word. Uh, sources in and around our home, and and of course, uh, septic system. I just want to say it's important to mention that these are some of the leading sources of nutrient pollution, but there are multiple other sources that we're not going to cover. But we wanted to kind of just talk about the big ones here. So let's start at the top. Nutrient losses from agricultural landscapes account for a significant portion of nutrient pollution in many areas. What is that when we're talking about that? Yeah, so nutrients, of course, stimulate crop growth, and they're typically applied as either fertilizer or animal manure. But when these nutrients from these fertilizer sources, if not all used by the plant, can run off into nearby water bodies, and that increases the potential for harmful algal blooms to develop. Okay, so that's out in in the agricultural areas of our country. What about in the urban areas? So when you talk about wastewater treatment plants, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so wastewater contains nitrogen and phosphorus from human waste, food, certain soaps and detergents. And wastewater treatment plants are able to remove some nitrogen and phosphorus before it discharges water. But of course, the discharge can still be a source of these nutrients. We talk about urban stormwater as a source for nutrients. What do we mean when we say that? Yeah, so stormwater runoff flows after precipitation and carries nutrients, sediments, and other pollutants into nearby waterways. And in undeveloped areas, the stormwater can soak into the ground and the soil and plants naturally filter out runoff before it reaches groundwater or nearby water bodies. But when buildings, parking lots, paved roads, and other impervious surfaces are added to landscapes, the stormwater flows directly through storm drains and into local water bodies instead of percolating into the soil. So stormwater runoff in urban and suburban areas includes nutrients from household uses, such as lawn and garden fertilizers, pet waste, detergents, and then, of course, other pollutants such as trash, bacteria, oil, sediment, and various other chemicals. Okay, so up at the top, I mentioned that fun big word called atmospheric deposition. So in addition to all of the agricultural and urban land use and activities that we just talked about, The burning of fossil fuels also adds significant amounts of nitrogen to the environment. And that's called atmospheric deposition when we talk about it in these terms. What what can you tell us more about that term? Yeah, so nitrogenous gases in the atmosphere are transformed via natural processes into nitrates and ammonium ions. And those are then deposited on land in surface water bodies by rain, snow, and then other types of precipitation. 
Electric power production, industry, transportation, and agriculture are the primary contributors to these atmospheric compounds due mainly to their reliance on fossil fuel combustion for energy. Nitrogen is also volatized as ammonium into the atmosphere from fertilizers that are applied in excess to farmland. Okay, so many of us um, around our, our place of residence, our homes, uh, you know, some of us might have a yard, right, where, where there are some things to, for us to con consider. I know that some of those things also contribute to potential nutrient pollution. What are some of those things that we should be thinking about um, in and around our house? So roadside storm drains um, often lead directly to streams and rivers. So anything that flows into them also makes it to local waterways without any treatment. Residential areas are also a significant source of nitrogen and phosphorus pollution from fertilizers. So over-fertilizing and over-watering a yard are very common practices. But when lawns and gardens are overwatered, fertilizer can be more easily washed away directly into storm drains and water bodies. So another thing is pet waste, which also contributes nitrogen, phosphorus, parasites, and bacteria to water bodies when it's not disposed of properly. In addition, there are sources of nutrient pollution inside our homes even. So many laundry, dish, car washing soaps contain a specific form of phosphorus called phosphates, and those are carried from our homes into the wastewater system. So even things like washing your car with soap in the driveway can contribute excess nutrients right into a storm drain. Okay, so those are good tips for us around the house to make sure that we're taking care of that. One of the things that we're, we're going to get into in this episode is septic systems. This entire episode is about a successful initiative going on in Montana around septic system updates and inspections. It's really interesting, really fascinating, particularly on the Montana landscape. I'm excited to share those interviews with you. Uh, and Tegan, anything until we meet up next time? I think that's it. Without further delay, here are my interviews uh, for the project in Montana. I am pleased to be joined by Emily Henry from the Western Montana Conservation Commission. Emily, welcome to the Clean Water Pod. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Well, we're really uh, excited about this project, and I want to hear about you first. So tell me about Emily, where you went to school, and how you got into this work. So I originally went to school, got my, my bachelor's at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from originally. Moved out to Montana shortly before the pandemic, uh, just just because, um, honestly, I had never really been to Montana, hadn't really been out west at all, but was really interested in the opportunity to protect natural resources that are still really pristine. So I grew up um, in Virginia, kind of in an area where, you know, the Chesapeake Bay, it's kind of already pretty, pretty far gone, right? And, you know, there were lots of times when I couldn't go swimming in the Potomac River when I was a kid and it was always such a bummer. So to be able to have the opportunity to be out here out west where so many of our waters are still so clean um, and actually be able to, to do something proactively to protect those waters is, is really important and something that I'm really interested in. Um, and so that's kind of what drove me out here. I got involved in, in this work, particularly as an AmeriCorps member. Um, so I served two terms with Montana Conservation Corps they, they have some really great programs that are really good for getting uh, young folks involved in the community. And I got connected with um, Montana DNRC, which is uh, 
the, the Western Montana Conservation Commission is attached to DNRC, the Department of Natural Resources and Conservation. Um, and so that's, that's how I really got connected with the folks that I'm with now. So the AmeriCorps program is a really cool program. Uh, we haven't talked about that on this show. We've talked to a lot of clean water professionals that do different Clean Water Act work, but this is a really cool opportunity to talk to somebody who worked through that program. Um, I'd be interested to hear your experience just a little bit more about how you found out about it, how you got engaged with that. And I would assume you would recommend this to young people that are looking to get their first experience in the conservation world. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Montana Conservation Corps, they have a lot of a lot of opportunities. Um, they're just one of many AmeriCorps programs out there. Um, so that I kind of after I graduated uh, college in my undergrad, I was looking for opportunities to do public service. And that's really what AmeriCorps is all about. Um, so you get a living stipend, you get matched with a host site through um, this Montana Conservation Corps program. Um, and the host site that I was matched up with just, just so happened to be with the Flathead Basin Commission, which is now the Western Montana Conservation Commission. Um, and I think that the, the program itself does a really great job of matching folks up with host sites that have goals that are really in line with what their, their expertise is. And I was really interested in clean water and protecting clean water. Um, and they were able to find a host site that was just, just perfect for me and was really able to give me a lot of opportunities. So it's something that I would highly recommend for especially young folks coming out of their degree to get some, some really good professional experience. Great. I love it. So you mentioned that the organization that you're with, you recently went under name change. Uh, you were Flathead Basin Commission, and now you're uh, called the Western Montana Conservation Commission. But you say that you're attached to the Montana Department of Natural Resources and Conservation. So what's that relationship like um, on a day-to-day -day level? The Western Montana Conservation Commission is administratively attached to the Department of Natural Resources and Conservation, DNRC. So that's part of the state of Montana. And so we get uh, an operating budget from DNRC. Uh, that's how we do, do a lot of our work. Um, all of the, the staff for Western Montana Conservation Commission are employees of DNRC. So we get a lot of, a lot of support from uh, DNRC as an organization support for grant writing and things like that from from them. So it's a really great, great relationship where we have, you know, some freedom in our own specific mission to do uh, great work in Western Montana, but we have this really great backing of, of a state agency. Okay, Emily, let's level set here. What's the problem? And what have you guys done to go about trying to fix that problem? The problem is really big. Um, so specifically, what what we're, one big thing that Western Montana Conservation Commission focuses on is septic leachate as, as a source of nutrients, right? So for, for those who maybe don't, don't know about septic systems, um, they are on-site wastewater treatment systems for typically an individual household. And septic systems, they, there's a tank, separates out the solids from the liquids. That liquid, which is called leachate, is then slowly released into the soil to be treated by microbes um, and, and hopefully get all of the, the gross stuff out of that before it seeps back into groundwater. So the real, the real problem out here in Montana, as you can imagine, uh, there's, there's a lot of septic systems, right? So there's certain municipal wastewater treatment systems around, um, but there's no way that you can get everybody with, with those centralized systems given how spread out and how agricultural the area is here. 
septic systems that, that leachate can become a source of pollutants, specifically nutrients to surface and groundwater resources. And so there are a number of nutrient-related TMDLs in Western Montana. Um, and so this is, this is a well-documented issue going back many years. We've had a lot of partners, um, specifically the, the Whitefish Lake Institute, that have really led the charge in um, trying to identify more about where, where this issue is coming from. So with septic systems, it's, it's an individual residence Right, and so it's really difficult to to pinpoint the exact source of where those nutrients are coming from, and there's not really strong regulations out here in Montana. Once a septic system is in the ground, there's no statewide regulation for how often it needs to be maintained or replaced. Essentially, it, that's the responsibility of the homeowner. And so we we kind of got interested in this issue because. It is a really big one out here in Montana. We see the effects of it. We see harmful algal blooms, um, not often, but more often uh, now than we used to. Um, and we're growing so rapidly. And that's, that's another big impetus for why we wanted to get involved in this work, because more and more septic systems are being put in the ground every day. So really, it's, it's a matter of thinking about systems that are that are there that are in the ground that are old and probably not doing what they should be but also trying to build out smartly and in a way that isn't going to contribute to this problem in the future so a septic system i mean i think we can all get on the same page that this takes care of your wastewater at an individual residence level um, but the resident may not know that this uh, septic system is failing because to them, like the waste is leaving their house and they may think, okay, like that's, we're good to go. But really it, there may be a failure because you can, you can tell that from certain environmental indicators and certain environmental issues that are, that are happening in that local watershed. So how are you determining that? And how are you outreaching to the residents that um, may need to take a look and uh, inspect their septic systems and update them? Yeah, uh, a lot of the work that we do is is proactive. So hopefully trying to catch systems before they get to a point of failure. Um, so really educating folks on the, the do's and don'ts of having a septic system. So put things down the garbage disposal. There are really specific things that you can do to make sure that your septic system performs optimally for as long as possible. So that's, that's kind of where we like to live in that area. Um, there are some indicators of, of failing systems, though, too. Um, on an individual residence, you know, if you see pooling water um, when it's not raining in your yard, that's, that's a really bad sign or can be a bad sign. If you're right on a water body and are seeing uh, a lot of plants blooming in, in your near shore that are maybe not normal or hadn't been there before, um, that's another, another indicator of that. Okay, so when you work with residents to to try to update these systems, what is it that um, you can do for these for these individual homeowners? So here in in the Flathead Basin, um, there's a big partnership going on where we help folks to offset the cost of pumping and inspecting their septic systems. So we know that this can be a really big um, deterrent for folks to get their systems um, maintained and inspected is, is the cost. And so with this program, this is supported by the Flathead Conservation District and the Lake County Conservation District. And um, 
essentially it's a it's a reimbursement program, 50% off the cost of your maintenance and inspection. Um, they'll, they'll reimburse you 50% or up to $200 of that. So that's just like one tiny thing that we can do to help um, help our residents to to do their part and help keep their septic system performing as well as it can. So how successful has this program been? I'd say it's been pretty successful. Um, this just started back in 2021, so it's still relatively new. Um, but so far, we've helped over 250 residents to to help their septic systems um, help get their septic systems maintained. So I would say it's it's fairly successful. Um, we're still looking at some innovative ways to get the word out about it, but I think we're we're pretty proud of what we've done so far, and the folks that have participated have been uh, really really grateful and really appreciative of it. So only been around for a couple of years. And so we know from water quality standpoint that it takes a while to show those impacts down into the water column, right? So we have actual water quality sampling. It may take time and a few years before you show enough improvement to say remove an impairment, which is the ultimate goal. Um, But are you seeing any sort of anecdotal trends that seem promising based on where you have been able to help uh, these uh, septic systems get inspected and updated? It's a good question. We we don't do a lot of, of monitoring in our world. Um, so it's hard to, to really say on the ground impacts, but I would say the the connections that we've made in the community are, are one really positive, strong impact that we've seen. Um, and just just getting people to think about their septic systems. I think a lot of folks, especially those that maybe are coming from a large city, have never had a septic system before, moving to Montana, not realizing that they even have a septic system on their property. So those are the kind of folks that we're really, really trying to reach and really getting them to just you know, consider this in their day-to-day activities and making sure that they're aware of it and doing anything that they can to help keep it, keep it moving, keep it functioning. Well, and I would imagine that something you know somewhat simple, like making sure that your septic system is up to uh, up to functionality and, and staying on top of that, is sort of a first step in, in in impacting the environment in a positive way. And like you talked about, people moving from the area, they probably move there because of the natural resources and and wanting to be part of that. And so it may be an opportunity for you to engage those people at that next level where uh, there may be more opportunities to help them get involved in water quality restoration and and protection work. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of the name of the game. That's that's really what we do is, you know, you find some way to to rope people in, um, which, you know, I mean, giving them free money is is a kind of a big thing. Um, that's an easy way to get people's attention. And then once once you have that, there's so many opportunities for for other ways you can be a steward of our water bodies. And people are generally really excited about keeping them clean. And and oftentimes I realize it's it's not a, a lack of caring. It's just people don't know that what their impacts are. And so any way that you can reach out to them about that, um, I'd say is a win. I've worked in water quality, you know, the majority of my career. And one of the things that people ask me all the time is like, Jeff, what's one thing that I can do to, to help, you know, improve water quality in my area? And, you know, if you live in an urban area and you have a wastewater treatment facility, that's certainly taken care of. This particular issue is taken care of. Uh, but 
if you do have a septic system, here's a perfect example of something that you can do to make sure that you're impacting water quality in a positive manner. Yeah, absolutely. So what are your big term goals for these projects? Do you have a, a certain number of you know, inspections or, or help that you're, you're aiming for? Where are you at overall in your outreach efforts? I would say we are nowhere near where we would like to be with this. I think um, there's over 30,000 septic systems in Flathead County alone. Um, so that would be a lofty goal to try to, you know, hit all of those. Um, but I think, I think thinking on, on the scope of Western Montana Conservation Commission. So this program is just within the Flathead Basin, which is one small subset or fairly large subset, I guess, of our overall jurisdiction, but it's nowhere near what our full capacity is. So I think thinking on our own regional scale, what I'm really interested in is taking this, this successful Flathead program that we know has been really instrumental in making connections with folks in the community and replicating that in other areas within our jurisdiction, um, kind of using that as a, as a cookie cutter and, and trying to really expand the reach um, all throughout the region, I think is something that, that we're looking at moving forward and um, have a lot of partners that can help support that effort. Nanette Nelson, I am with the Flathead Lake Biological Station at the University of Montana. Nanette, thank you so much and welcome to the Clean Water Pod. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, we're really excited to talk about you. We want to talk about your work and all the great things that you have going on in Montana. But I want to first start off about you. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? And why did you get involved in water quality work? Okay. Well, I'm originally from the Seattle area. So that's maybe one indication of why I got involved in water and water quality issues is we're surrounded by water there with the Puget Sound. Um, and I also spent my summer sailing with my family up to the San Juan. So we, we had a lot of water activity in my family. And at the same time, this is going to age me a little bit, but uh, Jacques Cousteau had a show on TV and we would see his boat sometimes up in the San Juans. And so I had an affinity for that type of science and um, actually went into oceanography uh, as an undergrad at the University of Washington. Um, did not continue on that vein, um, wasn't ready for graduate school, went into consulting for a while, but I did eventually find my way back to graduate school. And in that process, I switched gears and I ended up uh, studying economics and ecology. So my field is environmental economic, uh, and that's where I do my research. All right. So tell me more about your organization and what it is that you guys are focused on trying to do. So the Flathead Lake Biological Station, uh, as I said, is part of the University of Montana, and we are approaching our 125th anniversary, if you can believe that. We started Where do you in... give somebody as the 125th anniversary? <laughs> You're well beyond diamond at this point. Yeah. It was started in 1899, um, and they had field courses here, and people would travel long distances to get out here. You can imagine, you know, taking a train and then a, a, a horse and buggy cart and hiking. I mean, it was, it was kind of nuts. For that entire period, their focus has been on the water quality of Flathead Lake. And they do that through monitoring. 
um, primarily like nutrients, uh, temperature, dissolved oxygen. And we have one of the longest long-term data sets um, beginning in 1977. And so we've had a nearly continuous uh, monitoring effort for the lake's water quality. And we've made that data, avail data set available to anyone who's interested in it. And it was recently used by um, a large group of authors who were taking similar long-term data sets around the globe. And they put all this data together to make some inferences about how freshwater lakes are changing with climate change. So they looked at how temperatures are fluctuating and dissolved oxygen are fluctuating due to the evolving climate. And so we've helped um, in that sense in providing the data to, for their analysis. We um, have had many uh, different opportunities to work on different issues around water quality. I think one of the biggest wins here for the bio biological station was getting uh, phosphorus banned from detergents in the 80s. And anyone that's lived near a freshwater lake and they had phosphorus coming in as part of detergent knows how bad that can get in terms of the overproduction of algae and um, making the water go from clear to green and what happens when all that algae dies off and the smell and the problems with dissolved oxygen for the fish. And so um, the director and the other employees here made a big push to get that banned. Um, eventually it was banned by the state um, as well as other states have uh, banned any phosphorus and detergent. So I think that's one of the biggest wins here for the biological station. That's great. Yeah, we we're, obviously this season's all focused on nutrients and and in water quality and and trying to figure out where they're coming from and making sure that uh, we reduce those as much as possible. And that's a really great example of something that action that was taken that took a lot of phosphorus out of our water. Let's talk a little bit about the current programs that you have going on. So we've talked, uh, we're talking a lot about septic systems in this particular episode. So what are the approaches that your organization are taking to try to improve the septic situation? We, uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, decided to apply for some money for, out of the National Science Foundation. And this was an unusual call for NSF in that they were looking for projects that partnered with local stakeholders. And we knew that there was a strong local stakeholder network here in the Flathead Basin that had been working on septic system issues. So there was the Flathead Basin Commission. There was a couple of nonprofits, namely the Whitefish Lake Institute and the Flathead Lakers. There were um, agency folks, both at the state and federal level. We also have um, a tribal interests at the south end of the lake. So there was a number of different individuals that had been working on septic related issues for like two decades. And we said, hey, we would love to partner with you and bring in our expertise, which is a little different from yours in the sense of this um, planning grant that we applied for from the National Science Foundation. And they agreed. And it was an opportunity really to leverage the, um, the work that they had already done with this extra little bit of money from NSF to 
to just keep pushing that information, that research, that policy orientation, education, all of that forward just a little bit farther that these groups had already started. So the the scope in Montana in terms of septic issues or 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 the number of households that are on septic systems, like versus, you know, a lot of us may live in urban areas where our water is going to go to a central uh, wastewater treatment plant. And that's sort of the last we think about it, right? It's, it's just going to go there. But a lot of people, and particularly in the West, are, are having a self-contained system, a, their own septic system. So from your perspective, like what's the percentage that we're talking about uh, in terms of households that are on these individual septic systems? Do you have an idea of that? I do have an idea. We put that in our proposal. So the number of households uh, that rely on on-site treatment of their household waste or on-site septic systems is roughly half of the 428,000 households in Montana. And here in the Flathead Lake, I can't say for sure that we have more than half, but what we do have is we have a little bit of a limitation in, in being able to sewer the various developments around the lake because financially it just doesn't make sense to try and put all around the lake a sewer system. So um, the bigger areas like Kalispell, Whitefish, the bigger towns and cities, those are all sewered. And so households are connected to them, but the majority of us out here are on septic. And a lot of those are going to be closer in proximity to the water resource itself, right? Your 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 lake uh, houses are going to be naturally closer to the lake itself, and they're going to be using these septic systems. Yes, and so um, that's it's hand and glove there because uh, the shoreline is very irregular. You have bays, you have peninsulas. And so that's where all the people want to live. Um, they want to live right next to the water and kind of these quasi isolated um, parcels. And yes, they're right. They can be right there next to the lake. And um, some of them are grandfathered in. And the only way to change the septic system that they may have is if there is new development. And so when new development happens, that's the only time the state in Montana can have any influence as to how that septic system is going to work. So what they've passed is septic system laws that says if you're so many feet from the lake, you have to engage in a higher level, higher performing septic system. So usually it's called a level two. And those types of septic systems focus on nitrogen removal, whereas your standard kind of gravity gravity fed type um, septic system doesn't have necessarily that focus. It doesn't really remove as much nitrogen as level two. In this NSF grant that you have, um, what is it that you're hoping to achieve with uh, the the overall scope of the project? And where would you say that this initiative is at? Okay, well, the exciting thing is, is we already have done a bunch and I'll have to, again, like thank my partners in this, the stakeholders that have already been working on this issue in the basin because they had all the connections. But last spring, we held a two-day workshop here at the biological station and we invited a number of different entities, people, 
to come and participate. And so we had people that represented the tribes. We had people that represented state agencies. We had um, local sanitarians. We had um, nonprofits, we had academics, we had contractors, and most importantly, we had legislators, which was really nice. And for two days, we sat and we mixed up between having speakers and then breakout groups to talk about the various issues surrounding septic systems. So what are the social concerns or barriers to septic system management? What are the economic barriers to that? And what are the ecological consequences of having septic systems throughout the basin? And um, that made it a really holistic type of workshop. We were um, trying to look at it from all the possible angles. And it was a really interesting two days. And I learned a lot about other issues that I'm not as familiar with on how to address septic systems. Do you have like one or two big takeaways from this workshop that you think would be applicable to other people that are in water quality across the country that they could maybe take with them and apply in their own project? Sure. I think um, other than, I think just how it was organized is I think is an important takeaway and that it was so many different stakeholder groups coming together and wanting to talk about it and address the issue was I think crucial towards making some momentum towards um, septic system policies. Um, and in terms of specific outcomes that we kind of outlined in our various breakout groups, one of them is um, developing a nearshore monitoring network. And this is crucial for a lake of this size. So I told you earlier that the biostation has long-term data from the 70s. That data is all collected at the middle of the lake. And all of that data shows that there's been no change in phosphorus or nitrogen other than the, the 80s phosphorus detergent blip, but there's no long-term trend, right? But we can see at the near shore, we can see that it's changing and we can see it because there's more algae growing on the rocks. There's more paraphyton that you can see every single year. So what people who work in this field, lake ecologists or limnologists have been wanting, have been asking for is to develop these near shore monitoring networks so they can really be able to tell these, watch these changes as they're occurring. So that was one idea that came out of that workshop. And I will tell you that um, this planning grant that we got is all about setting yourself up and your colleagues to write another bigger grant um, to NSF. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna write another proposal and it's gonna involve establishing a nearshore monitoring network so that we can get some baseline data on Flathead Lake on what, you know, what is the current conditions and then be able to monitor it as, it, as we move forward, as, as the septic systems that are existing um, age and possibly begin to fail. And as we add more people here and they put in their own septic systems, as this whole basin, you know, begins to see that we need to upgrade how we handle household waste.
Um, well, another thing we want to pursue is um, with this NSF proposal is we want to pursue uh, remote sensing. We think that that's going to be a real key way for us to quickly determine changes in the nearshore environment, which then could be backed up by on the ground, boots on the ground sampling. It would involve taking images from space that you could then analyze and develop an algorithm or a machine learning program to analyze those various images to see if you're increasing in the existence or density of the algae that's growing on the right on the rocks, the paraphyton that's growing in that nearshore environment. And so for a lake like Flathead Lake, um, what we're seeing is it's so low in nutrients that when nutrients do reach the water, it gets taken up like that. And so that's why we've never seen a change in nitrogen or phosphorus concentrations at the center of the lake it's because it's all getting taken up by the plants that are right there at the interface between the um, groundwater and the surface water. So that's going to be really the way that we can tell that we're having these impacts from septic systems in this particular lake. And this is not unusual. We had a um, an expert on filamentous algal blooms. And she said she's convened other experts and this is happening in a lot of lakes that are similar to Flathead, which there are these low nutrient lakes. Because of the low nutrients, they're very clear. There's a, uh, they're very deep in terms of how far you can see. The water clarity is exceptional. And yet what they're seeing is these amazing blooms of this attached filamentous algae in the nearshore environment. And so this is a phenomenon that's happening, not just here at Flathead, but in other low nutrient or oligotrophic lakes across the globe. A big problem, so, so I've been talking a lot about the ecology effects of, the, of septic systems, but I haven't addressed at all my particular field, which are people. So how do you get people to change their behavior? Um, and naively, when I came into this project, I'm like, well, it's obvious. All you need is data. You show people data, they'll change their behavior. It's this uh, kind of nudging phenomenon that everybody's crazy about, right? I have been put in my place. Um, people aren't really responding to data. So um, there are a lot of deeper um, societal issues going on when you come into a community and you ask them to either upgrade their septic systems or heaven forbid, you ask them to sewer their uh, wastewater. And what we're finding is at least in uh, Sealy Lake, which is nearby, for instance, um, is that people have a very strong connection to their community and the way the community is. And they're afraid that when you bring in sewer, a mainline sewer, and you start hooking up all the houses to that, that it's going to change the shape and nature of their community because it's going to immediately allow for more development. And, and that makes sense. It's difficult for all of us to accept change. Um, so they rejected the opportunity to have a, 
a sewer system put into their community with it, most of it paid for by the feds and by the state. And so, and it's not for lack of data, it's not for lack of education. They have tons of data from groundwater to surface water to those plants that I was talking about that grow so fast when there's a lot of nutrients in the water. I mean, the, the, all the signs are there. You don't have to be a great scientist just to see something has changed. And it's because the septic system in that community around that lake, they're just leaching into the lake and making it eutrophic, adding nutrients, causing all these plants to grow. But despite that, the folks aren't willing to change the nature of their community by having a, a mainline sewer. So that's one area that I've really been struck by is, is this kind of deep-seated feeling of not, no, not in my backyard. It's, it's a different application, right? Conflicting interests, right? It's uh, there's different things going on, and like you said, there's identity, there's a, a, a desire to keep things the same, but also, um, you know, I'm sure plenty of people are supportive and, and want to make sure that they're protecting what the probably the most valuable resource is in, in the area, right? Like that's probably why people really enjoy living there is because of that natural resource. So sometimes those things come into conflict. Yeah, I was hoping to be able to to move people to to improve their best manage to improve their management of their septic systems through that trigger right there which is you know how beautiful this lake is you moved here because of this lake or maybe you're a long time uh, montanan but a lot of us have moved here because of this lake and i thought oh that'll be sufficient the lake sells itself but it it's it's not <laughs> it's really not um so so my goal is through um, the, the next proposal is to really work on those um, social pieces. Um, what, what are people responding to? Um, what are they getting? Uh, um, what are they rejecting? What are they putting up a fight against? And, and trying to have conversation around those topics so that it's, it's not just thrust on them, but it's something that they actually choose to adopt. Well, Lynette, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us on the Clean Water Pod. And thank you so much for all the work that you've done in water quality. Thank you, Jeff. It was a great opportunity to talk about this research. I think also it's really important and it was really fun chatting with you. My name is Mike Koppel, and I'm the executive director at the Whitefish Lake Institute. So, Mike, welcome to the Clean Water Pod. Thanks, Jeff. Pleasure to be here. All right, Mike. So let's first start with you, the person. So where are you from? Where did you go to school? And how did you get into clean water work? Well, I'm originally a, a flatlander from Iowa. And so I was born and raised, and I went to Luther College which is a small liberal arts school in the Northeast part of the state. Um, but right before college, I volunteered with the Student Conservation Association Building Trail in the Great Bear Wilderness, um, which is located just south of Glacier National Park. And so here's a kid just out of high school, uh, had never seen a mountain before. And my parents drove me out to Montana. And, uh, you know, what an experience uh, being out uh, remote in the woods for a month uh, you know, fishing and catching trout and, 
and seeing bears and and it really instilled in me a sense of place like it it just felt like montana was the place for me and um during college i spent a summer out here as a camp counselor and uh again you know doing things like taking groups down the north fork of the flathead river uh in canoes or doing backpack trips and and uh, i just knew that i wanted to spend the rest of my t my life if i could in western montana and so uh i got a biology degree at luther and uh luther college is in the driftless area of northeast iowa which just means that the last glacier never impacted that area so most people think of iowa's flat and corn or soybeans right and that part of iowa is hilly and has uh, spring-fed trout streams and and I don't know, maybe I fished a little too much uh, in college and didn't concentrate as much as I should have on my studies. But at the same time, uh, it really uh, gave me a, a deep appreciation for the aquatic environment. And, uh, and I knew that's the direction I wanted to go. And so when I moved to Montana, I was fortunate enough to get a job with Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks in their fisheries division. And so I was basically out in the field every day, whether it was electro fishing, uh, conducting trout population estimates or uh, trapping fry as they out migrated from the tributaries to the rivers. Um, and so it was a great experience to get a lot of field work. And then I went to volunteer on a Whitefish Lake advisory group. And uh, so Whitefish Lake is located about uh, 25 miles west of Glacier National Park. It's a community of Whitefish. The community is about 8,000 people, but we really swell during the summer with all the visitors that come to visit Glacier and in other locales. Um, and uh, so this Whitefish Lake Advisory Group had met two or three times, but then they had disbanded and nobody was accountable to the process in the end is what I figured. And so I spent some time, a couple of years thinking about uh, how to form an organization that could be effective in providing Whitefish Lake a voice uh, because Whitefish Lake is undergoing increasing pressures from development, from recreation um, and other land use pressures, uh, one of which is septic leachate pollution. Um, and so I ended up writing a business plan for the organization and cold calling uh, community leaders and visiting with them. And it was pretty universal that everybody thought that we did in fact need a local group to again provide that voice uh, for the resource and so we got started and basically i worked for two years without pay um, to get things going and i would consult on the side you know i do a weekend job or do a week or two project and then come back uh, to get this organization going and now we are we're 18 years later we have a staff of four and I think that we've become integrated in the community and we're accomplishing a lot of the goals and objectives that we set out to uh, complete uh, in the beginning. So let's talk about from the water quality perspective. Uh, this season is all about nutrients. So we're focused all on nitrates and, and, and phosphorus, but specific to your backyard, what is it that you saw as the issue? What were the, the, the effects of, of that pollution? Um, and how are they manifesting themselves in the water? And, and how did you figure out what you were going to do to try to reduce that pollutant load? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, you know, 
things are a little different here in Northwest Montana in terms of water quality uh, compared to Iowa, for instance. You know, out here we have relatively pristine water quality, and the end goal is to keep it that way, right? So we want to keep nutrients uh, out of our our waterways uh, or any nutrients above background levels. Um, and then we want to safeguard our, our water bodies against aquatic invasive species and, and some other things. But um, so when I started the Whitefish Lake Institute, you know, with my fisheries background, I was interested in conducting, you know, fisheries studies and, and such. But really, it came down to the need to make sure that Whitefish Lake was safe for people. So we originally focused on human health related issues. Uh, two of those would be, um, the first was a gasoline constituent loading study where we looked at um, gasoline derivatives in the water um, next to swim beaches. So, you know, typically public beaches are near boat launches. And if you scratch your head a little bit, you know, that's maybe not the best combination, right? Um, and what we found in Whitefish Lake was that we did have some um, uh, increased uh, gasoline pollution um, near, you know, major boat ramps uh, right next to where all the kids in town are swimming. And so that was of concern. And so we took that data to the Whitefish City Council. And now uh, we have implemented a, um, a catchment system or an interceptor trench at the city beach boat ramp where people can now trailer their boats, pull them up on the boat ramp and then pull their transom plug. And we want people to do that, right, to to drain their equipment uh, so we don't transfer aquatic invasive species. But anyway, that effluent then goes down the ramp, gets intercepted in this trench and conveyed to a hydrodynamic device, which is kind of like an oil water separator, right? And so that water gets treated and it stays away from all the kids that are swimming there at the public beach. Another issue that was of concern to us related to public health was the septic leachate issue. So this is where um, we wanted to understand if there were uh, underperforming or failing septic systems that could be contributing human pathogens or and or uh, nutrients such as nitrogen and phosphorus uh, to our waterways. And so back in 2011 and in 2012, we did a shoreline investigation of Whitefish Lake and with septic leachate studies, you can use myriad tools to uh, determine whether or not you have any septic leachate um, influence. Um, we chose, based on our budget, to look at things like E. coli, right, which gives you kind of a ballpark um, estimation, but you don't know if that E. coli reading is coming from a human or a seagull or a beaver, that type of thing, right? It just kind of gets you on the map. Um, we did some nutrient testing. Uh, but then we kind of uh, focused in on uh, the fluorometric value, which is using an instrument called a fluorometer that shoots out a, a light and it captures a unique wavelength that is emitted by optical brightening agents. So these are the types of things that go in your laundry detergent to make your whites look their whitest. And if we pick them up in a water body, then we can tell that this is coming from a human derived source as opposed to natural background sources. We then looked even further where we're getting hits with the fluorometer and some other indices. And 
uh, conducted human DNA biomarker testing. So this is looking at the DNA of the uh, fauna that resides in the gut of guts of humans as opposed to other species. And we found um, hits on those as well. And so that study led to the city of Whitefish um, forming an ad hoc Whitefish Lake Advisory Committee that came back to the city with a management plan for how to deal with the situation. And that's kind of a long story, but uh, in the end, um, it hasn't gone anywhere yet uh, because this is a situation where science has kind of crossed over into the social realm. And um, it's that's not in our wheelhouse. <laughs> we have a harder time with that. And so the, the issue is, is lingering, if you will, here locally, but we've expanded out um, this project uh, regionally uh, through the Flathead Basin Commission with further studies. Did you develop a model or anything that would tell you where, how much was coming in, or you know, did the state work with you on on modeling the the watershed to to figure out what the acceptable levels were, how much was coming in, so that you could get an idea of where you were at? That's an excellent question related to septic leachate because. A lot of the studies out there are uh, basically a presence absence type study. And so we can pick up indicators of septic leachate pollution in lakes or rivers or streams, but we're terrible at source tracking, right? We, we can't say definitively where that is coming from. You know, is it uh, Jim Bob's septic system or is it Jolene's or, you know, that type of thing. Um, and so the Whitefish Lake study, um, really got transferred or, or expanded upon at the Flathead Basin Commission. And the Flathead Basin Commission was legislatively created by the Montana legislature in 1983 to basically protect and study the, the waters of Northwestern Montana, well, the Flathead Basin in particular, obviously. Um, and so at the Flathead Basin Commission in 2019, they came out with a strategic vision that really wanted to understand what the non-point source issues were here locally. And so we started with stormwater and septic leachate pollution. And so with, with that, um, we developed a GIS uh, risk uh, map. So we took publicly available information and uh, spatially or created maps so that the public could readily discern, you know, what the issue is, you know, rather than you and I talking about septic leachate and, you know, here's a picture of it on a map that people can easily understand. And so that project really had two major components. One was a physical risk assessment. And so that looked at different variables such as uh, septic placement um, and its distance to surface water. It looked at um, groundwater levels or depth to groundwater in areas. It looked at the slope, you know, the topography of the area. And it looked at um, the soil treatment capacity or the ability of nutrients such as nitrogen and phosphorus to move through soil particles. Um, because obviously we're worried about the breakout of these nutrients into surface water or, or groundwater. So that was kind of a standalone map in a, of itself, right? But then we looked at um, the septic density on the landscape. And so we went into the 
flatted county records and um, flatted county started requiring septic permits in 1978. So we had a data set from 1978 to 2020 um, that showed, uh, what was it, 24, over 24,000 septics on the landscape. Um, and with that septic uh, permit information, we could tell how old the, the septic system was. And the general rule of thumb with septic systems is that they, they last, you know, 25, 30 years, um, and then they need to be uh, replaced, right? So maybe not the septic tank, which we uh, encourage people to pump every three, four, five years, depending on use. But um, a lot of people don't think about the distribution field or the drain field um, post or distal to the septic tank. And that's really where a lot of the treatment uh, occurs in the soil as the microbes break down all the things we don't want entering our, our waters. Um, so we were able to um, spatially display uh, where all of those septics were in their age classes. Um, then of course, I'm sure you're sitting there, you know, wondering, well, what about before 1978? And that was a question we had as well. And uh, so we did a, a cadastral search and, and kind of focused in on on those properties that we thought were, were reasonable to assume there may be a septic system on that parcel. And then we did a mail out campaign uh, survey to substantiate that. And so at the end of the day, we think there's uh, another, well, over 6,000 septics on the, on the landscape. And most likely when you think about that, you're talking about systems that are, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old. So it's a pretty good, you know, guess that they're underperforming or if not flat out failing at this point. And so those two maps ultimately were were squashed together, right? They were overlaid to produce a final risk map that showcases where on the landscape in the flatted basin currently we think we have issues uh, related to on-site wastewater treatment. And so I think this is a great uh, planning tool uh, for uh, water quality planners uh, decision makers uh, so that they can work on, you know, zoning and growth policies and, and, and individuals can then also go and see what the conditions are in their local area. And we tell people, you know, this is not a, a real granular assessment, right? It's not meant to be used on a, a, a specific site parcel basis, but it's more of that 10,000 foot elevation look at the issue on the landscape. So you've got about 30,000 individual systems that you're, you know, eligible to work with in, in some degree. You're looking to encourage folks to uh, have a maintenance schedule, right, of, of like every three to five years to make sure that their, their tanks are being serviced in, in the proper amount of time. And then you said lifespan of, of the field is generally like 25 to 30 years. Now, do they need to have like a new field or do they need to just rehab the current field? Like, you know, do, do, I mean, it's Montana, so there's a lot of space, but does everybody have that uh, available to them if they, if they need to update the, the leachate field? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, not, we don't always have the space. So if you think about the lots around Whitefish Lake, they're very long and thin and steep, right? So they don't necessarily have a replacement field site there 
on the parcel. And so a lot of systems or a lot of homeowners will have to upgrade to a level two system. And I just tell people level twos are, are basically a typical septic tank on steroids. They're just more heavily engineered and uh, can be sited in a more confined space. Um, you know, the ultimate goal would be to get people on centralized service uh, to export their their waste to the, you know, wastewater treatment plant. But that's not always available, right, based on distancing and costs associated with providing that service. And so, you know, on-site wastewater is an effective form of, of treating household waste. But again, it has that finite life expectancy. And so if you think about it, like if you're a homeowner and you end up with a hole in your roof, something you can see, you're going to be on the phone the next day finding a contractor to get that fixed. Septic systems are another form of personal infrastructure, and yet you can't see them and you can't see if they're performing. And so, you know, we advocate that the systems be inspected. And even, you know, you can't just inspect a whole system just through the septic tank itself. You might get indicators, but you really need to take a closer look at that distribution field. And so that's where, you know, the science comes in from other institutions, you know, EPA and and state agencies and academia who have studied this. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think we're looking at um, some policy recommendations uh, to uh, have a more formal site assessment for individual systems in the future. And, you know, they have been uh, tried in other locations. Some states do better than others or some counties do better than others. And the issue has been discussed now at the Montana legislature. I think the last three sessions, there's been some sort of on-site wastewater treatment bill uh, submitted. Um, this past year, there's one that got out of the Senate uh, Natural Resources Committee, but then got tabled in the Finance and Claims Committee. Um, so it feels like in Montana, we're making baby steps in terms of uh, education and outreach on the topic and trying to galvanize some sort of policy that uh, would uh, offer a level playing field for all. Um, and at the same time, we are protecting our shared resources. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and all of your work in clean water. And thanks for joining us on the Clean Water Pod. Thank you, Jeff. Okay, that's all we got for episode two. I wanna thank Emily, Nanette, and Mike for talking to us about all the good work in Montana. Join us next month for episode three as we head back east and talk to some folks in Maryland about a successful effort in the Chesapeake Bay. If you have any questions about this or future episodes, please get in touch. You can find us on Twitter at cleanwaterpod or send me an email at cleanwaterpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, what questions you may have, and what you'd like to hear on the pod in the future. Until next time, thanks for listening.